my heart was moved as I processed today to come back to a passage in scripture that um, is perplexing, is humbling, and incredibly hope-giving. Uh, it's perplexing, it's humbling, and it's incredibly hope-giving. And um, I want to refresh in you in the truths that undergird this little story and may God uh, encourage you in it. So I'm gonna read this passage and I'm gonna ask our brother Luke to come up and just pray for us as we engage in God's word. This is from Matthew 15. I'm gonna start in verse 21 and go through 28. These are the very words of God. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord. For even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then he answered her, O oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Brother Luke, would you pray for us? Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to come together and hear your word, Lord. I just pray so much that um, it's not Albert's words, Lord, but you speaking through Albert, Lord, through the gifts that you gave him to preach, Lord, but your words alone today, Heavenly Father, I pray that you guide him, give him wisdom, reverence, and joy for bringing this message. Lord, please prepare our hearts. Please, Lord, uh, put on our hearts... Um, the right attitude to receive your word, Lord. Uh, please give us reverence for uh, hearing your word, God. Please open up our hearts and our eyes, Lord. Heavenly Father, I just pray, as you say in Psalms, Lord, ears to hear and eyes to see are gifts from the Lord. So please give us those gifts this morning, God. Holy Spirit, just please be in our presence. And we just ask this humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Luke. Ears to hear and eyes to see are gifts from the Lord. That is that's helpful, really helpful to process that. Um, okay, so the context of this passage in Matthew 15, um, without rehearsing 15 chapters of Matthew, is simply that Jesus has been battling with the Pharisees, the leaders, the scribes, the religious elite of the nation. And uh, he is tired. And so he is seeking rest and he's going to leave the borders of the Jewish people, Judea, and he's going to go into Gentile territory, not to do ministry, because that's not where his primary ministry is, but to go rest. But it goes into Gentile territory, he's interrupted by this desperate Gentile mother. And she's a Canaanite. She's a descendant, that is, of the Canaanites the Syrophoenicians, these were Israel's ancient enemies. This woman, maybe, but certainly her people, worshipped demonic gods, worshipped demons. Some were named Baal, some were named Moloch, and these gods were infamous for soliciting the offering of human sacrifice. So, 
the Canaanites would offer their children to fire in the worship of these idols. They would take their babies and put them in a giant oven to Moloch alive. And there was all kinds of other detestable things going on in those nations in terms of incest, sexual immorality. Um, but maybe the offering of children was the most um, heinous. And uh, Deuteronomy 12.31 makes it clear that this was obvious to God and obviously um, grieving and hateful to him. It tells us there about the Canaanites that every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. So maybe the irony is the wrong word, but poetic potency is that now this woman comes with her daughter oppressed by the very demons that her ancestors and maybe her community have been offering their children to and she is seeking his help for deliverance from these demons who have now possessed her daughter. And she cries out, this Canaanite woman, to a Jewish Messiah, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, acknowledging his Davidic descendancy. And she knows in that statement, I know who you are. You're a Jewish king to me, and I'm a Canaanite woman. So, Let's get that straight. I know what I'm asking is out of your wheelhouse. But Jesus does something that we would not expect if we're familiar with Jesus in the Gospels. He ignores her. I can't think of another time that Jesus ever responds to someone in desperate need in the whole Bible. But she keeps clamoring after him though. She ignores his ignoring. <laughs> And she's clamoring after him so much that the disciples want Jesus to help her. Their, their please send her away isn't get rid of her, tell her to shut up. No, they can do that. They want this done. Lord, give her what she wants so we can get rest, right? That's the deal. And by the way, you've been doing that all over the place for 15 chapters. So get her off our backs. Jesus answers them, not her. When he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He tells them, as the son of David, as the one who's filling all the promises made to Israel concerning her eternal king, Israel is my primary and exclusive mission field. This woman hears that for sure, and she is undeterred. She moves in closer and she throws herself down at his feet. Lord, help me. Jesus takes the ignoring, the rebuttal up a notch. It is not right to take the children's bread, it's the Israel, and throw it to the dogs, the Gentiles. So first he ignores her and then when he does talk to her, he rejects her for her pagan race. And he compares her to a dog. We don't know if that's a pet or a beast in terms of the, the Greek. It could be either. It could be less severe or more severe. But the point is, you're, you're not worthy of my help. I came for Israel. You're a Gentile. But she doesn't stop. I would have stopped, probably, I imagine. But she doesn't. But here's what's also really beautiful and interesting her next response is to agree with him. When he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, her next word is yes. Yeah, that's true. Yes. But even the dogs, she doesn't, the Greek isn't but, but it's yes. And she says, for even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from their master's table. Okay, yes, I'm a dog. And remember what happens with dogs. Little breadcrumb here, little slice of turkey here off the table. Just give me a crumb. That's all you have to do. And then Jesus responds, and we can't read this in the English. It's emotional. Like, it's evocative. He is moved. And he says, oh, woman. He expresses amazement. He's amazed. 
and he's delighted. And he takes back his early rebuffs. Great is your faith. I've been looking for this. Be it done for you as you desire. And Matthew ends the story with this simple, powerful word. And her daughter was healed instantly. Not that you should enter into my subjective experience. This story is one of my favorites in the whole Bible. I love it so much. It is perplexing, it is humbling, and it is ultimately hope-giving. And I love it for all those reasons. The perplexing part is easy to see, right? There's no, we said it earlier, there's no other passage where someone comes to Jesus desperate for help in a terrible situation and he ignores him and outright says no. Anyone familiar with Christ and the Gospels would say, what are you doing? This doesn't make sense to me with who I know you to be. But in coming to grips with this rejection, we're confronted with our own presumptions about who we are and who God is. That that's, It's really cleansing to get, re, to get right with, to get right about. And sort of my first point is that, that this is humbling. The, there's a humble truth here for us. I think I gave you a slide for the humble truth. And this is the humbling truth. God doesn't owe us. God does not owe us. It's something we have in common with her. When Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he is essentially saying to her, you have no claim on me. You don't have any right to my help. You can make no demands on me. And Jesus is bringing before her a truth that's echoed throughout the Bible across the Testaments that it is solely God's right to give mercy to whomever he chooses. And it is God's right to withhold mercy from whoever he chooses. And no one can force his hand. And maybe some of you this morning are taken aback by Jesus' words and this whole idea of his right to give mercy, his right to withhold mercy. Isn't he, God, isn't he love? Doesn't First John tell us that God is love? Isn't he the ultimate and only foundational source of, of all kindness and compassion? Yes, he is. But it's worth rehearsing to ourselves again this morning that God is also holy and just. And he calls us to recognize his mercy for what it is. It's mercy. It's not owed. It's not payment. It's not debt. God owes us to treat us with fairness and justice. That's different than mercy. And the bar of his justice, as we've been looking at in Romans, says that we are in ourselves guilty before his holiness. And this is humbling. And without being exhaustive, if we just take a, a few considerations through God's holy character revealed in scripture, we see that if the Bible is right, that we are guilty before his holiness. We've murdered with our hearts and hatred and anger. We have committed adultery with our eyes and thoughts, if not our bodies. We've stolen from family and employees with our lack of respect for our parents or our laziness at work. We've given into idolatry whenever we've put our deepest hope in anything. Popularity, money, a career, a relationship. We put our deepest hope in something more than God. We've judged and accused God when we give in to grumbling and complaining. We've neglected Christ himself if and when we neglect the poor among his people. We live as hypocrites when we ask for forgiveness from God but withhold it from others. Expect God to be patient with us and come down in judgment on one another. All these things are effects of our greatest problem. We don't love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength or our neighbor as ourself as we saw last week. And the reality is God is not in our debt. We're in his And every day, with every breath, even if we were perfect people, 
with every intake of oxygen and every exhale of carbon dioxide, we would be saying, God, you provide everything for us. We can't put you in the other ledger sheet on the other side of the balance statement. In Luke 17, Jesus is talking to the disciples and he, he brings the humbling down to an even deeper level. He teaches this. He says, talking to his disciples who will lay down their lives for him. He, he says, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at the table Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. That's incredibly humbling. What the Lord is telling us under the scaffolding of this parable is that any good thing we do, it's always what we were supposed to do to begin with. We were created as a race to love God with all our heart, mind, and soul and strength. It wasn't some special payment to him that, or, or it wasn't something that, that we could do to put God in our debt. That's what we were made to do. And the truth is, we can never get on the positive side of God's ledger sheet so that he's indebted to us. He doesn't owe us anything but justice. And if we knew him as, and ourselves as we should, I'm convinced that we would see this humbly reality that we're owed eternal death for our lives. But we don't see that really well. It's very difficult for us to see. Something in this woman, either she saw it or she knew enough to not challenge Jesus, responds to him in a way that is humble heart way. We might have too low a view of God and too high of you from ourselves, but this woman seems to get something. Even as she continues to appeal to Jesus in this story, she never attempts to refute or contradict what he says to her. She doesn't say, hey, that's not fair. You shouldn't treat Canaan like this, you racist. And listen, there is racism. It's real. But that's not who God is. He's not being a racist here. She doesn't say, I'm a woman. How dare you treat me with sexism? And sexism is real. Women have been oppressed and mistreated throughout history. Oppressed by men with power. But she doesn't say that to him. Because even though she's an, an ethnic disadvantage and a woman, before God's throne, she doesn't have the right to make a demand on him. And none of us do. Black or white, rich or poor, man or woman. We don't have the right to demand of God anything except justice. She doesn't say, oh dear Lord, you can't really mean this. The modern scholars say you must mean something else. No, she just agrees with him. She just says, yes, Lord. Okay, you don't owe me here. It's your right to have mercy on whom you choose and to withhold mercy if you choose. And this is true. But she doesn't give up. She doesn't give up. She won't stop with, okay, justice. I deserve justice. Okay, I, I, don't, I don't have any right to claim. What, and so I'll just leave. She is not willing to settle It's almost as if the, these rebukes of Jesus are just like setting her free 
from any like hope in herself at all. She's like being refined by it. So that ultimately what she comes up with is, hey, I'm not going anywhere because you're good. I'm not leaving because you are compassionate. It's almost as if she's like, I see past all this rejection. I see past the circumstance you're foistering on me, but deep down in there, you are, you are loving and you will love me. You will help me because that's who you are. And I'm banking on that. I'm not banking on my demand. I'm not banking on my status in this world. I'm not banking on my performance before you. I'm not banking on my goodness. I'm not banking on what you owe me. I'm just banking on the fact that you are good. You are loving and I'm not letting go until you give me this because you're good and because you're loving. And this is what the, the, I think the main point of this whole little passage is. We can, we must put all our hope in God's good heart. This is the hope giving truth. We can and we must put our hope in God's good heart. I don't think Jesus was interested in rejecting this woman at all. I mean, I don't think the things he was saying to her weren't true. It's true. God, God did not make a covenant with the pagan nations. They rejected him and he let them in his justice stay in their place of rejection until he sends out these apostles to a large degree. The truth of God and the gospel didn't reach the Gentile nations. It's about to. But up until that time, God had focused mainly on the people of Israel and creating a covenant with him. So he wasn't lying to her. He wasn't saying what was true. But I don't think that Jesus was interested in her, no, I'll go home, forget it. I don't, I, mean, I, I don't know how this story would have panned out if she'd walked away. But I don't think he was gonna let her walk away. I think the whole point was he was refining her. He was drawing out of her gold through this circumstance and through this trial. And that gold, more precious than gold, was her faith in his good heart that she would not let go of the truth that he is good and he will help. What does Hebrews tell us faith is? Faith is believing that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And she conquered. Through her faith, just like Noah and Abraham, she is also in the hall of faith. <laughs> she conquers Look again at verse 25. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the bread and throw it to the dogs. Now watch, she affirms this truth and then she brings another truth behind it. Yes, Lord, for even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. God will allow you to exist in all kinds of dark circumstances, hard trials, hard circumstances, hard difficulties. And if you let those things tell you that God doesn't care about you, that God has no hope for you, that there's nothing you can do but surrender and give up on him. Then you're misunderstanding the point of the circumstances and the trials God has brought into your life. Because God is trying to grow your faith through hard things. And she learned a beautiful principle. Spurgeon says of her, or from her, he, he brings this application to us. Do not contradict a frowning truth of God. Do not contradict a frowning truth of God. When you find a truth in scripture that's unpleasant to you, unpalatable to you, that you don't like, and you're, you know, you're pretty clear. This is what God says. Don't tell him he can't say that. Don't tell God who he can be. No, Spurgeon says, do not contradict a frowning truth of God, but bring up a smiling one to meet it. Bring up a smiling one to meet it. 
What he means is when you come across Romans 9 like I did when I was a freshman in college and it says, Jacob, I loved, Esau, I hated. That God can choose who to be merciful to and he can choose who to withhold mercy from. I didn't like that God. That freaked me out. And I wondered if maybe, you know, God would withhold mercy from me. And that sent me spiraling into a place of real hopelessness for a time. But what it was forcing me to do was understand both in humility, letting God be God and not telling him he can't be who he says. But also, God taught me through that to go find truth that I needed to balance that, to give me hope in the midst of that. And so when I heard, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, and I will harden whom I'm hardened, when I heard that and that sent me spiraling down, I prayed and I cried out and I sought in his word and I came upon Psalm 45, 8, 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in his steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Whatever it means that I chose Jacob and not Esau, it cannot mean that God never loved Esau or that God had no mercy on Esau. I I don't know how to perfectly work these things together. But hate can't mean what I think hate it means. (laughs) At least not without also being true that God has mercy over all that he has made. So she didn't dispute the hard truth, but she took refuge in a promise of his goodness. She simply refused to contradict God and tell him he couldn't be, he can't be who he says he is. But what she did was she, she didn't stay there. She embraced also the other realities of who God is that would bring her hope. Let me try to explain using more scripture references what what I think it means to to embrace God and let him be who he is and yet flee when that's a hard thing and yet flee somewhere in the topography of who he is to find hope. So let me think about, uh, let me think of it this way. You might come upon a scripture like Galatians 6. Whatever a man reaps, that he will sow. And you're here this morning and you know in your heart of hearts that you're displeasing God in some aspect of your life. And you acknowledge that he is a holy God and that whatever a man reaps that he also sows means that you are going to reap terrible things for what you've been sowing. You're you're feeling the chains of some sin wrapped around your heart and you know that that sin is wrecking your life and you know that you're already experiencing the loss of freedom. You're already maybe feeling the tentacles of addiction strangle you more and more. Your heart is becoming harder and harder. And you hear God say, whatever a man reaps, that he also sows. And that just sounds just hopeless to you. Like, oh great. What am I supposed to do with that? Whatever a man reaps, that he also sows. Well, listen, my friend, you need that truth. Because it's true. God isn't playing around. Someone said to me, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. You need that hard truth to warn you this morning and you need to be humble before it and recognize, okay, that is the reality of justice. The reality of this universe is that we reap what we sow. But listen, if that's, that's the only truth you stay on, if that's where you stay, you will die there. You will die there. There's no hope 
in that principle, it puts maybe a reality check on where you're going. It, it even puts perhaps, if God's gracious, the fear of God in you. But you can't stay there. You need to move on from that truth. You need to go somewhere else. You need to fly, fly to another promise of God, not the law of reaping and sowing. Without denying it, you need to go to the grace and mercy of God. You need to say, yes, Lord. It's true that a man reaps what he sows. But do I not have a high priest who is able to sympathize with my weaknesses, who has been tempted in every way that I'm tempted, like with this addiction and this struggle, yet he never sinned? And, and he, hasn't he commanded me to come with confidence in him to the throne of grace so that I might receive mercy and find grace in time of need? So that I stop reaping and sowing this terrible dynamic? We face the stern truth that sobers. We don't deny it. We don't pretend the universe is different than God has made it. We don't pretend and make God not to be who he is. But we learn to let it drive us to a truth to give us hope. Peter experienced this in 30 seconds on the night of Jesus' betrayal. Jesus comes over to Peter. He's been boasting about how he will never let Jesus go. He will, even if everybody else leaves Jesus in his zeal, he will stay with Jesus to the end. And Peter, Jesus says, Satan, the prince of demons, has submitted your name on an application for hell. He wants your soul. He says, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. Satan's seen into your heart and he knows that you will deny me. He knows that your commitment to me is absolutely fallible and broken, sin-infused. And it will prove to be false tonight. And he's desired to take you to the bar of justice and say, he is not worthy of Jesus Christ. That's hard truth. That's the reality of Peter's heart. Jesus doesn't say, but Satan's lying about that. I mean, Satan certainly lies. <laughs> it's a hard truth. What does Jesus say? He says in his very next breath, but I have prayed for you so your faith will not fail. I have prayed for you the same dynamic as with this woman. You're falling short at the bar of my justice. You have no hope in yourself. But I have prayed for you and you will not fall away from me. I will guarantee it. I will sustain you. I will keep you going. Your hope is in my good heart. And so we can hear those same foreboding fears, right? He who endures to the end will be saved. Well, Lord, didn't I make a decision when I was five? And on that day, we will hear him say, I never knew you. Away from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Oh my gosh, Lord, what if that's me? They prophesied in your name. They even did miracles. And you say, Lord, I never knew you. Oh, I just won't, I won't think about that. I, that's not true. That's not really in the Bible. That can't be me. There's no way I'll, I'll end up there. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know if I would do that with that. I don't know if I'd go. But here's what I would do. I would say, Lord, you've promised to intercede for me at the Father's right hand forever so that I would never fall away. I would go to Hebrews 7, which I have, where Jesus says, because he lives forever, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. For he always lives to intercede for them. Every day I show in different ways that my heart doesn't merit salvation. I don't live up to the, to the commands of God. I don't live up to the scale of justice. What do I do with that? Do I pretend that I do? Do I pretend that God's not holy? No, every day I come back to the truth that Jesus Christ has promised to never stop interceding for me. And I look at his behavior on earth when he was in the gospels and I see that even this woman 
who wasn't even in his covenant, was denied mercy ultimately because she refused to give up on his good heart. And I say to myself, I'm going to refuse to give up on his good heart because I'm his blood-bought kid. And I come back to the truth that, Hebrews, that Philippians 1.6 tells me, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So I'm not going to just erase passages I don't like. I don't like Roman Revelation 4, where Jesus says, would that you were hot or cold, but since you were lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. I don't like that. That doesn't fit with my reformed theology of once saved, always saved, which I believe. And I could spend a whole message explaining how I think those two things go together. But I think Jesus meant what he said. Hey, church in Ephesus, you've become lukewarm. And if you keep walking lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That's horrifying to me. But I'm not going to take my eraser and say, God, you can't say that. You can't be that way. That doesn't fit my systematic theology. No. I'm going to say, Lord, but by your grace, you would spit me out of your mouth too. But Philippians 1 says, 1, 6 says that he who began a good work in me will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And I've put my hope, not myself, but on your ability to start and finish the work you started in me. So I'm pleading this until I get what I am asking for from your good heart. Endurance, heat, zeal. I am cold to you. I feel indifferent to you. I feel stuck with you. But here, you said you'd complete the work you started in me. So complete the work you started in me, Lord. I'm not leaving until I get what you've promised. I don't deserve it, but that's not what I'm banking on. I'm banking on your good heart. I'm banking on your kindness. So you might have walked in here this morning with a record of hopelessness and fear that you're heading for hell because you know your sin is great. You're not erasing scripture. You're just aware of God, the holy judge, And that the wages of sin is death. And that is true. And we should believe that and be sobered by it. But we cannot stop there. There's no fuel for strength in that doom. We must hear the next words and go on. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. This is this woman's example. We let God be God. We don't play cafeteria style with his Bible, with his holy word. But his holy word has also commanded us to not give up on his good heart and to pray and to ask and to seek and to knock until we get what he has promised. His mercy, his grace, his kindness, his power, his spirit. We can't make it without him. Our hope is not in ourselves. And that's what this woman came to terms with. And that's what she saw. And, and this is what, this is also really beautiful to me about this passage, is that she saw with her own eyes what we want to see with our own eyes. By not giving up on the goodness of God, by refusing to let go of the goodness of God, she saw his joy in her. She saw his joy in her. She saw him erupt in pleasure in her heart. It's like a little truncated piece of our whole Christian life, you know? God puts us through so much. He allows us to go through hard things. To purify our faith, to strengthen our faith, to get us to learn that we can't bank on this world, we can't bank on sin, we can't bank on our ways. And she fights and she fights and she fights and she fights and finally it happens. She gets it. Oh Lord, all those things are true, but you are good and I'm not giving up on your goodness. 
And he's like, that's it. That's it. Oh, woman, great is your faith. I mean, he might have said to her in another place what he said to the, to the disciples when the centurion asked to heal his servant. He said, I've not found faith like this in all of Israel. So that's what he is looking for from us this morning. For maybe our own lives or for those we love. I mean, it, this story, it's impossible to read this story if you're a parent and not think of your children. Or your loved ones that don't know God, that are oppressed. And, and to not say, okay, Lord, there are all kinds of things about you that I find difficult, that I find hard. But you are the author of this love I have for my kid. You understand this love I have for my child. I'm not letting up on it. You put it in me. So I'm just going to keep banging on this door for my kids. I'm not going to see them become hardened, lukewarm, or just apostate, lost people. I'm not going to try to pretend that eternal death isn't real. I'm scared for them, but I'm not giving up on your good heart for them. Help my kids, save my kids. <laughs> So kind of three questions to wrap up here. When you get up in the morning to have a quiet time or your devotional life, or you get up in the morning and hear that desire to, that you need to do it, but you just put it off and you go to something else. How much of that might be related to the fact that your heart is banking on not God's good heart and goodness, but is just kind of, Deciding that he's just already displeased with you. He already doesn't want to hear from you. Like, you're already in such bad shape. Why would he, I mean, you didn't have a devotional life last week or the week before. It's just like, why would you talk to him now? He, you've just been so lukewarm with him or your performance before him in your mind is so lackadaisical. All those things say, you're focused on you and you're not measuring up. You're focused on that. Listen, I don't think God's really that interested in that with you. I think he knows that already. I think what he wants you doing is presuming that he's good and he's merciful and he's forgiving and you should come to him anyway because you have to. Like, not you have to, like, the, you need him. You have to. Like, you've got nowhere else to go. So when you get up in the morning, are, are you, when you think about praying, do you rehearse how inadequate or crappy you are before him in your life? Don't. Put your hope in his good heart, his forgiveness, his gentleness, his tenderness, his mercy. It was never about you measuring up to begin with. Like, Why is it suddenly now that when I wake up in the morning and I hear those voices, oh, I don't want to be with him. He knows that. This is, phone is so easy. And we start the cycle all over again. And another, I'm already in the doghouse without having intimacy with my father. And my day's already going to be so much less than it would have been because I've nullified his grace made it about how poor I am at this Christianity thing. He knows it. Go to him. You've got nothing to bring him in yourself. That's this is one thing. Secondly, do you know enough of his word to know what promises to plead? Like, we've got to know the mercy the tenderness, the compassion places to go to when we either hear in our hearts or read in his word the hard things? Do you know where to go? Do you know his word enough 
to say, okay, this is really hard. This is really discouraging. Or what I'm hearing in my own inner narrative, like without the Bible, is really hard. It's really discouraging. Do you know his promises enough to know what to do? Like any of these verses I quoted. Or I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Or come to me, all you are weary and heavy burden, I will give you rest. Or no temptations overcome you, it's not common to man. But God is faithful with the temptation, he'll provide a way out so you can endure it. Like, do you know that there are intelligent truths about God that you need to find refuge in? So, I guess that's just a call to say, like, if you don't know, ask somebody who you think might. Like, what do I do with this thing I keep banging into? I talk to a counselor like every few months and I'm, most of my counseling time is spent saying that to him. I'm hearing these narratives in my head and one way or another I'm saying the same thing and they're giving me hopelessness. What is God really like in that dynamic? Like what can I bank on? And what I need from him isn't like his theories about God. What I need primarily is not like I don't even need primarily like stories about how I'm here because of what my mom did to me. Or my dad did to me or what. I need to hear from my father like truth that gives me hope. I need to hear about his heart again. And that's what we need in these hopeless places. So do you know his goodness? Do you know the truths that you need to fight hopelessness. And if you don't ask somebody, ask me for the love. That's why I'm here as a pastor. <laughs> I mean, use me up. I'm still getting a paycheck. You might as well get your money's worth. Call me, text me, email me. Like, I want to help you fight. And lastly, I guess I just this last thing is, what have you given up on? Maybe who have you given up on? Yourself, your loved ones. This lady in this story, she loved her daughter way too much to give up on her. Jesus was crazy about that. He loved that. Sometimes we don't have a lot of love in us <clears throat> for our daughters, sons, husbands, wives. But we still know that that's not good. And we wish we could be better. We wish we would be more loving. We wish we could get that love back and that fight back for those people. So if you don't love your spouse, your children, your loved ones enough, to plead like this woman did. But you care enough about you and the Lord enough to say, I don't want to stay here in this place. I, I, I don't want to give up on my marriage. I feel like it. I'm numb. I don't want to give up on that relationship with my dad or my brother. I don't want to stop praying for my son or daughter. I mean, I do because I'm tired of it and I've gotten numb to it, but I know that's not good. I want to be like this lady. So start there. Give up on giving up. And, and pound the door and keep asking, keep asking. You know, in the, in the DR groups, one of the uh, section, the section on prayer, we talk about David and Mark's not here today. Where's David? Like, just I did. <laughs> One of our assignments this week is just, we're gonna grab a person in our orbit, brother, sister, mother, father, friend, coworker, and the next time we meet, we're gonna say, this is my person for this DR. And every single time we're meeting, we're gonna bring that person back to God. We're gonna keep pounding on the pavement for, for this person to be saved, to come back, to be healed, whatever it might be. 
But there, there is a, I think, something to be imitated in this woman's refusal to give up again and again and again and again and again. Right? Like, I don't always like it, but, but the Lord insists on persevering prayer. Like, he's not a big fan of like, Lord, bless everyone all, all over the earth, amen. And then you're done with it forever. <laughs> you know, he, he is... He is asking us to persevere in prayer for things that we think he should be giving us because he's good. Not because we deserve it, not because we're owed it, but because he's good. He's asking us to ask and seek and knock. And those words from everything I understand are persevering words. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking again and again and again and again. So what have you given up on in your prayer lives that you're starting to give up on that you know you shouldn't. Don't. Every day, bring it to him. Say 2023 is going to be a year that every day I'm going to bring this thing to him. I don't know what it is or what you need to make it an everyday thing is. But the point is, quit giving up on giving up. Wait, no. Give up on giving up about that thing. Sorry. So, this woman is amazing. I'm so glad that God heard her prayer and her plea. And you, in this room, most of, the, of you I know, are in a much better position than this woman. Because you're his kids. You're his sons and his daughters. So you're already starting off many spaces ahead of this dear lady. Hopefully that day ended with her being his daughter too. I have great hope it did but you are his kids and he wants to hear from you. So let's spend just a few more minutes um, just bringing him the people or the situations in our lives that will only change if we're banking on his good heart because we can't change him either in us or them. And let's just talk to him about those things. Remember his good heart. Whatever you need, whatever is on your heart right now, spend a few minutes bringing that